Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 263, Athelflaed and Ingmund. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to a secret Santa that, for the second year running, has bought gift memberships for several members of the BHP community who are in need. I'm really lucky to be part of a wonderful and generous community like this. So thank you to all the people who make efforts big and small to make the world a better place. You're amazing. And speaking of amazing people, you can meet some of them at 2 p.m. this Sunday at the George Inn on Borough High Street in London. And you really should come if you can. I can't tell you how fantastic the BHP community is. Everyone's just lovely. Okay, so when we left off last episode, war had come to Mercia. Ingemund and his Scandinavian allies abandoned their peace treaty and were seeking to expand their borders. But according to the Irish Annals, it wasn't Athelred, Lord of Mercia, who was organizing the defenses. It was Athelflaed, Queen of the Saxons. Now, as we discussed in the last couple episodes, we're in a period where our accounts diverge and many of the Anglo-Saxon accounts pretty much erase Athelflaed and instead devote most of their attention to her little brother, King Edward. But that's not the case for the Irish and Welsh sources, nor is it the case for the Mercian Register, and thus for those surviving copies of the Chronicle which draw from the Mercian Register. And while the Mercian Register, being Mercian, might have cause to hype Mercian leaders, you have to really wonder why they would focus on Athelflaed rather than Athelred. That is, unless the stories about her military and political leadership during this time were true. Furthermore, I can't think of what cause the Irish and the Welsh would have to conspire jointly to lie about Athelflaed's ascendance to the seat of power. I mean, if we're going to assume that Athelflaed really wasn't doing all that much, and that it was actually Athelred who was doing all of this alone, and that Edward's account was really the only accurate account that you have during this period, you would also have to go and discount Athelflaed's presence in the charters, where she's granting lands pretty much as a monarch. You'd also have to ignore the fact that after Athelred dies, she's the ruler of Mercia, and she has enough power to establish her daughter as the heir to the throne. And to be perfectly honest, we have just as much documentary evidence for Athelflaed as we do for many of the earlier Anglo-Saxon leaders. Leaders that pretty much everyone accepts as real without question. The fact is, Athelflaed existed, and chances are that the annals are telling the truth, and that she was out there leading Mercia, and it looks like she was really good at it. And I think the reason why you see the occasional male historian, and it really is only male historians, say that actually Athelflaed wasn't all that important, and the true hero here was Athelred, who was ruling and fighting while his wife was presumably at home doing nothing, is because they just can't imagine an Anglo-Saxon lady acting as a military leader. I mean, that has to be what's going on in their minds, because there certainly isn't any documentary evidence to suggest that Athelred was the only important leader of Mercia. Instead, the sources go to extreme lengths to remind us of how sick Athelred was and how Athelflaed was taking point quite a bit. So, if you're skeptical of Athelflaed, buck up, buttercup. The evidence is here, and for this period of time, it's actually relatively abundant. And Athelflaed was very much a leader in the model of the House of Wessex. She was here to fight the Danes. 
Now, as you might remember, we learned from the fragmentary annals of Ireland that Athelflaed had a network of spies, and that some of them had discovered that Ingamund, the Northman who had settled near Chester after fleeing Ireland and then Wales, was out there meeting with some Danish and Norse warlords and enticing them to bring war to Mercia. And upon learning of this, Athelflaed responded to it by ordering the Ferd of Mercia to man the walls of Chester and fortify the city. But the record isn't clear on how long they had to wait, how long they walked the walls, wondering if they had just rushed into action for nothing. The part of war that's often left out is how large portions of it are governed by the principle of hurry up and wait. And you can imagine that the Ferd, after the walls were patched and everything was arranged, were settling into their position in the city. The Anglo-Saxons loved games and poems and songs, and I can imagine that these peasants-turned-soldiers were telling stories and playing games while they sat around trying to kill time while they waited for whatever riled up the queen to come into fruition. If this lasted a week or a month or a season, we don't know. But eventually, a messenger arrived. He came representing Ingmund and his Danish and Norwegian allies, and he offered terms. They wanted the city of Chester, as well as the fertile land surrounding it. And if they weren't given it freely, then they would take it by force. The Mercians were then given a timeline. They had until a certain day to agree to these terms, or else war would be upon them. Now the annals tell us that it was Athelflaed who gathered the fert around her and filled the city with her troops. However, the annals continue and mention that Athelred was still present though they also point out that he was on the verge of death. In fact, this is something that they repeatedly mention. Pretty much anywhere that Athelred's name comes up, the scribes tell us of how he was basically on his deathbed. So while the scribes were careful to remind us that Athelred was present, they also wanted to make sure that we knew that he was too sick to directly take part in the defenses. So upon the arrival of the Scandinavian messengers, rather than having the royal couple looking down over the battlements and directly barking orders, Athelred was on his sickbed. And so the soldiers had to send messengers back to the royal chamber and ask Athelred and Athelflaed how they should respond. And the royal couple were steadfast. There would be no terms. The Ferd were to hold the city, and detailed battle plans were drawn up for how they were to accomplish that. And now that they had their orders, all the Ferd could do was wait for Ingemund to make good on his threat and bring his army to their gates. And he did. On the promised day, the armies of the Danes and Norse were sighted on the horizon. Ingemund's force was vast. He had arrived not with a warband or two, but with a great army. And this was the force that was now marching right up to the border city of Chester. It must have been terrifying to see. But in the face of this, the Mercians did something surprising. Rather than hiding behind their walls, the gates of Chester opened and revealed that those who manned the city were not just some mere peasants. They were the mightiest members of the Ferd, skilled veterans of numerous wars. These were soldiers who were armed and armored to the teeth. The sight of them likely brought to mind the hearthrods of old. Mercia was making its own show of force. And to prove that this wasn't all flash and pomp, these gleaming warriors left the walls of the city and marched forward to meet the Danes in open battle. What filed out of the gates was a callback to the warbands that served Penda, 
and Athelfrith and Chinnawolf. They would have moved as a steady, deliberate, and unshaken unit, and then they took position a short distance in front of the city gates and formed their shield wall. Spears, shields, and swords were readied. This was a message. They wouldn't hide from these pagans. They would meet them directly in battle. The war bands of Mercia were inviting Ingamund into honorable combat. But despite spending several years living to the north of Chester, Ingamund was still a Northman. He wasn't Anglo-Saxon. He was a Scandinavian raider. And so he wasn't bound by the same concepts of honor that the Mercians were. And Ingamund had numbers on his side. So, rather than sending an equally sized warband to engage with these apparently suicidal warriors, Ingamund sent a force that dwarfed them. And his army was so big that he was able to do this and still hold large numbers of troops in reserve, just to watch what would happen next. And on his order, the Scandinavian detachment locked their shields and advanced on the brutally outnumbered Mercians. A short distance away, the Ferd dug their heels in and readied for the inevitable clash of shields that was coming. And it did. The impact of the Scandinavian shield wall against the Mercian Ferd must have rattled the veterans down to their bones. They were experienced. They were hardened. But so were these Vikings. All things being equal, they might have been able to hold. But things weren't equal and the Ferd simply didn't have the numbers to counter what was coming at them. So with every moment that passed, they were pushed back towards the gate. If the Ferd wasn't careful, it wouldn't be long before they'd be pressed right up against the walls. And then, without any more space to retreat, they would be butchered like lambs. But the gate was still open. There was still a chance to escape back to the safety of the walls and it was clear they couldn't withstand the Scandinavian advance. And with every step, more of their comrades were caught by a thrusting spear or the crash of an axe. They were losing. Badly. And while these were brave warriors, everyone has a limit. And they had reached theirs. Their only hope lie within the walls of Chester. The Ferd broke, and they rushed as quickly as they could for the gate, back to the safety that the city's walls provided. But a breaking army is always an opportunity for its enemy. And the Norse and Danes saw theirs. If they could take the city walls, this war would be over before it even began. And the gate was open. So as the Ferd fled, the combined Viking force chased after them. A mass of men crowded their way through the opening. Perhaps those in the back held their shields and attempted to provide some degree of protection from the advancing horde. Or maybe they were just focused on getting through the gate as quickly as possible. However it happened, I imagine that the crush at the gate must have been chaotic, claustrophobic, and terrifying. Fighting and shoving and pressing their way through the gap, the Ferd finally made it back inside the walls of Chester. And then it happened. The Scandinavians rushed in behind them. In a mere matter of minutes, perhaps even in a matter of seconds, the Vikings had penetrated Chester's greatest defense. They were inside the walls. Watching from his vantage point, Ingmund must have smiled. Even at a distance, he would have been able to see that this was going incredibly well. Then, the gate slammed shut. And the screaming began. 
Ingemann could hear the sounds of battle. He could hear horses and weapons and the sound of men dying. But behind those walls, he couldn't see anything. None of the remainder of his army could. And looking at the walls and the armed force that popped up, he must have realized that he had no chance to rescue his men. Whatever they had just walked into, they would have to deal with it alone. And what the Northmen found within the walls of Chester was a nightmare. The veterans of the Ferd had not truly broken. It was a feint. And once within the walls, once the Scandinavians were fully past the gate, they immediately reformed their shield wall. At the same time, other members of the Ferd emerged from their hiding places and quickly locked the gate behind the advancing raiders. Disorganized by their charge, the Danes and Norse only had a few moments to reform their shield wall. And I wonder if, in the rush to prepare for battle against the Ferd that was in front of them, they even saw the array of cavalry that was lined up on their flank. In the chaos of that moment, did they notice the sound of hooves? Or perhaps a whinny? Or were they blissfully unaware of what was coming towards them, and didn't notice until thousands of pounds of horse and soldiers slammed into their lines? With nowhere left to flee, all the Danes and Northmen could do was stand and fight, which is what they did. But they were outmatched in every possible way. And it wasn't long before they were defeated. And unlike the armies of Alfred, the Mercians showed absolutely no mercy. Every single one of the invading raiders was killed. There were no surviving Scandinavians within the walls of Chester. I don't know what happened next. The annals don't mention what the Ferd did immediately following that victory. What we do know is that this military feat was carried out according to the plan set by Athelred and Athelflaed. And we also know that Edward's son, Athelstan, was about 12 at this time, and he was a ward of the royal couple. And based upon what we know about him when he grows up, I suspect that he was watching this event carefully, because he had a front row seat to a masterclass on how to deal with the Danes. Outside the city walls, Despite the massacre that had resulted from their first advance, Ingemund and his army weren't about to give up. These were hardened warriors, and more importantly, they had bet everything on this battle. Ingemund and his men didn't have a home to return to, at least not anymore. There's no way that Athelflaed would allow them to return to their lands north of Chester. That chance for a peaceful coexistence was gone. Now, if they wanted to live here, they needed fortifications to protect them. They had no choice but to obtain victory. If they were going to live, they had to take Chester. And with that imperative, Ingemann's army immediately set to work creating a framework to protect their men as they built and dug their way ever closer to the walls of Chester. And under their canopies, inch by inch, they advanced. The plan was that once they were at the walls, they would undermine them and thus create an opening for his host to enter the city and avenge their fallen comrades. It was a tried and true strategy. The trouble, though, was that it was also a painstaking and time-consuming task. And it wasn't particularly subtle. And Athelflaed had a network of spies. That's how she knew about Ingemann's secret meeting with his allies. And these same spies were sending reports back about Ingemann's activities, and critically, the composition of his army. At some point, Athelflaed learned that the Scandinavian army, led by Ingemund, 
also had large numbers of Irish freemen and fosterlings that were bolstering their numbers. And that was really good news for the Mercian royal couple. You see, while the story of Ireland has largely been on the margins of our story, that doesn't mean that the Irish weren't engaged or involved. They very much were. It's just that in this poorly recorded era, we don't always hear about them. But even with our sparse record, we know Irish scholars interacted with some regularity with Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. And as we've talked about many times in the show, we always underestimate the scale and reach of trade. And of course, we can't forget that the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms and the Irish kingdoms had common cause on religious grounds, and they were also both under the same existential threat by the Scandinavians. The Irish were natural allies. And yet here they were, bulking up Ingemann's army. But perhaps they could be turned. It was an opportunity that Athelflaed and Athelred would have been foolish to ignore. And so a messenger was sent, not to Ingmund, but directly to the Irishman who supported him. And it stated, quote, Life and health to you from the king of the Saxons, who was ill, and from the queen, who holds all authority over the Saxons. And they are certain that you are true and trustworthy friends to them. Therefore, you should take their side, for they have given no greater honor to any Saxon warrior or cleric than they have given to each warrior or cleric who has come to them from Ireland. For this inimical race of pagans is equally hostile to you also. You must, then, since you are faithful friends, help them on this occasion. End quote. Now, thankfully, the Irish scribes recognized that the subtext here might not be entirely clear to us. So he continued, quote, This was the same as them saying, Since we have come from faithful friends of yours to converse with you, you should ask the Danes what gifts and lands and property they would give to the people who would betray the city to them. If they will make terms for that, bring them to swear an oath in a place where it will be convenient to kill them. And when they are taking the oath on their swords and their shields, as is their custom, they will put aside all their good shooting weapons. End quote. Now, you might have noticed that I've been using Northmen and Danes for very specific groups in this episode. That's because while the terms are used interchangeably in the Anglo-Saxon sources, the Irish annals draw firm distinctions between the two groups. And that's because the Irish had a more nuanced relationship with the Scandinavian people. And their relationship with the Northmen was actually important and surprisingly cozy because many of the Irish present at this battle were actually fostered by the Norse, meaning that the Norse had raised many of them when they were children. So they developed close ties and asking them to betray the Northmen probably would have been a bridge too far for the Irish, regardless of any friendly ties they had with the Mercians. But as for these new Danish allies, well, that's a different matter entirely. They didn't owe the Danes jack. So, while the Northmen were hard at work under their ramshackle defenses, attempting to reach the walls of Chester, the Irish were meeting with the Danes and passing along Athelred and Athelflaed's offer. The Danes sent back a demand for lands and gifts, and the royal couple agreed. Acting as intermediaries, the Irish established a meeting place where the oaths could be sworn and gifts would be given. Based upon the way the fragmentary annals describe it, the spot that was chosen sounds a bit like a dell, a low patch of land surrounded by hills. The Danes arrived along with their Irish allies, intending to meet with the Mercians 
and received their dangeld of cash and prizes. But as they reached the agreed-upon spot, the Irish carefully pulled back a bit from the group. They probably played it casual, and then they waited for the Danes to disarm, as they always did during these oaths. Once that happened, they sprung the trap. The Mercians and the Irish set upon the now disarmed Danes with a torrent of rocks, arrows, and javelins. There would be no escape, and no quarter was given. The disarmed and ambushed Danes were slaughtered where they stood. And meanwhile, far from the massacre, the Northmen were still under their canopies. They must have known that they lost some of their allies. After all, the Danes had vanished. Or perhaps they had scouts in the area, and they received word of the betrayal and the ambush. Either way, they knew their numbers were dwindling. And as for their Irish allies... Well, they certainly would have known about that, because not only were they now absent from the Norse lines, a sharp eye could now see those same former allies walking along the walls of Chester, right alongside the Mercians. Not only had they been betrayed, they'd found a way to sneak into the city and bolster their numbers. But it didn't matter. Ingemund had a new home to win, and that home had fertile, rich lands. And now... As the cherry on top of this charming pastoral Sunday, they also had a really good reason to seek revenge. And so they continued to advance their canopies. And once they reached their walls and began digging, the defense of Chester quickly turned into siege warfare. Rocks were hurled down upon the heads of the Norse sappers, crushing them. And so the canopies were strengthened with sturdy branches. In response, the Mercians took the ale and water that was still within the city, boiled it in large cauldrons, and poured it over the Northmen who were unfortunate enough to be at the walls. In a particularly graphic entry, the annals tell us of how, as a result of this attack, quote, their skin peeled off them, end quote. But still, Ingemund refused to give in. And instead, he ordered that they spread hides on top of their canopies to protect the crews that were digging at the walls. Seeing that the Norse had successfully warded off their ale attack, the Mercians moved on to mead. The Anglo-Saxons still had quite an appetite for mead, and that meant that any settlement of a reasonable size needed apiaries, and Chester was no exception. So the beekeepers were sent to gather their hives and bring them to the walls. Then they hurled the hives down upon the reinforced canopies. The hides and wooden supports were enough to protect the Norse from the rocks and boiling ale. But as for tens of thousands, or perhaps even hundreds of thousands, of incredibly pissed off bees? Well, that's another matter. There was no safety for the Northmen. The swarm easily reached the men under the canopies and stung any exposed skin. Hands, arms, faces, eyes. There was no reprieve and no stopping it. Not even their clothing and armor could fully protect them, as the enraged bees could easily slip up a loose fold and reach whatever tender flesh they found underneath. Not even running away would save them, as the maddened swarm would just chase wherever they went. Back at camp, Ingmund saw his men panicking. He heard their screams and watched them run blindly from the canopies. Those that made it back to camp were horrifically swollen and mangled. We're told that the surviving besiegers weren't even able to move their hands and feet because of the sheer number of stings. This army had endured much. The slaughter at the gates, 
the Irish betraying them in subsequent ambush, the rocks, the javelins, the boiling ale. There had been so much that they had suffered through. But those bees were the last goddamn straw. When even nature seemed to be conspiring against them, it was time to pack it in. So Ingeman's army gave up and retreated. Chester was saved. And Mercia was triumphant. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast. And you can join all our other communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.